0: Um, today we come to a moment of reckoning for the family of Eli, but also for the nation of Israel. Um, and, you know, again, kind of for the reason for calling this series uh, the Ark of the Covenant, um, is the Ark is going to be lost in battle uh, to a foreign nation, um, which sort of leads to uh, the question that shapes our sermon title for the day, which is, where is the uh, the glory? Uh, the ark is lost. You might say the glory of God is lost. At least that's what we read in the text. Um, of course, uh, that makes me think of other things that may be lost or or stolen. I know muzzle uh, loading season has begun. Um, I think the way I told this joke in the first service, people thought I was implying that all those who were hunting deer with muzzle loaders were lost. Um, that's. Not what I'm saying, but speaking of things which are lost, you know, it made me think of a couple of friends who um, they went out deer hunting um, together. And they went out with a group of guys, but they paired off in twos for the day's hunt. And Tom and Henry, um, they went out. And, and later that night, um, Tom staggered back in all alone, um, carrying just, he was under the weight of this massive deer that was kind of hunched over his shoulder. Um, of course, his friends were immediately like, Well, Tom, where's Henry? Tom said, "Well, Henry wasn't feeling too good, and so I left him laying on the ground back up there, a couple miles up the trail." Um, and they're like, "Well, so you bring the deer back and and you leave Henry laying out there?" He said, "Well, it was a tough call, but I figured nobody was going to steal Henry." Um, so h- anyway, um, let's let's read our text. One Samuel chapter four, um, verse twelve. If you would, out of reverence, respect, the Word of God, stand with me, um, and let's read it together. We begin in verse twelve. Um, Verse 15. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, "I am he who's come from the battle. I fled from the battle today." And he said, "How did it go, my son?" He who brought the news answered and said, "Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured." As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Verse 21, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And you may be seated. Now, in the, the big picture, now I would return uh, to the question we've kind of titled this sermon as where is the glory I think that's a question that kind of frames um, a lot of this text Um, it's a good question for us to ask ourselves just in terms of you know where is the glory in my life what it is what is it that I'm living for what am I seeking Um, what what is the glory that really matters to me um, and I, I think we'll see as we move into this text that, um, again, that shapes these events quite a bit. We're going to see God's judgment finally um, fall on Eli and his sons, Hopney and Phinehas, and, and the nation just at large. And, and it's a reminder, uh, by the way, that none of us, we don't live in a vacuum. Our, our lives affect other people, starting certainly with our own families, but moving uh, outward through uh, our church, our community, even our nation. Israel as a people. From the big perspective, had been pursuing um, the wrong things the wrong way, and God has withdrawn his glory to honestly horrific results, as we'll see in the text. But um, as we break it down, we'll unravel all that. We start um, with Eli and what I'm going to call Eli's despair because I believe um, he, he kind of knows what's coming. Um, We see him first pictured here in verse 13 of chapter 4. When he arrived, that's the messenger from the battle. Eli was sitting on his seat by the road. That's the same way we first encountered Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. We think this was kind of an elevated um, seat Um, that was near the entrance of the tabernacle. Um, People had to pass by it in order to enter the tabernacle grounds. Um, But by the time we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, we know um, he's seated there, and it's probably because he's not capable of a whole lot more. Um, He's 98 years old. He's blind. He's grossly overweight. That's the text description, I believe. Um, But he's also, you might say, sitting on some other very important information. Um, A prophet of God has come to him, Um, in chapter 2 and said this and this that shall come upon your two sons Hopney and finished shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day so a prophet came and told him that then in the next chapter a few days later we would suspect or months later um, God came to little Samuel and said behold I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle on that day I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end Eli is getting very old. Uh, The nation of Israel has headed out to battle. His two sons are guiding the Ark of the Covenant, and he's received these messages in the not-so-recent past. We've got to assume that Eli is smart enough to do the math and and probably figure out that this battle is not going to go well, that this is liable to be a dark, dark day. Um, Now, it's worth mentioning, I believe in a way that really relates the text to us, Um, That from a worldly perspective, Eli is a priest. He's serving in God's tabernacle. From an outward perspective, you would say um, he's a good man and he's doing the right things the right way. But you know what? That does not guarantee that a person is right with God. Um, and, of course, we know if you lift the veil of his life just a little bit and you get into the backstory, and certainly look at the lives of his sons, that, that there's some wickedness there and that God's judgment is about to fall. And I think we're to read this whole text as if Eli knows it's coming. All right? Um, but let's break it down. We start with just the ambassador or the, the messenger from the battlefield. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. Um, I don't think it's an accident that this was a Benjamite. Um, The Benjamites are going to be very, very significant in the remainder uh, of the book of 1 Samuel because Saul, um, Israel's first king, is a Benjamite. Um, But also, when it came to this battle with the Philistines, the Benjamites were the most southern tribe in in terms of the geography of Israel. And so as the Philistines... crept inward uh, on the nation it's likely that the Benjamites were the first to really encounter them they were probably taking this battle more seriously than the rest of Israel um, particularly northern Israel which is where the bulk of First Samuel has been um, located for um, that's the tribe of Ephraim's land again that is toward the north where Shiloh is um, this has probably not been an important conflict to them until suddenly this um, Philistine invasion Okay, um, so now it's gotten very, very personal. But again, to the to the Benjamites, it's been even more personal. We know from a simple reading of the text that it hasn't gone well. He ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. Um, You could assume that's from just fighting in the battle, but really that is more a picture of the way um, the Jewish people at the time grieved or mourned. Um, They would tear their clothes, they would put dirt on their heads. Um, Nehemiah 9, it was a day of national fasting and confession for the people. 24th day of this month, people of Israel were assembled fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads it's kind of what they did um now eli he's blind so he doesn't see that this man has torn clothes he doesn't see the dirt on his head um, in fact he couldn't see the messenger of all at all and so eli is pretty anxious all right um as we've already said i think he's anticipating bad news um but um when the messenger arrived eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching um, for his heart trembled for the ark of god um He's at his normal place. I suspect, as they would have done in, in this day, they didn't have cell phones or, or news or anything like that. They had arranged, probably, for a messenger to come and to tell them what was going to happen. So Eli is kind of sitting in vigil, waiting to see um, what the news is. Again, he's, he's heard bad news from God on at least two occasions. He knows the ark's gone out. He knows his sons have gone out with him, with them. Um, but he's... He's blind, and so this messenger shows up, and he never even knows it. The messenger apparently kind of runs past him, as we'll see. But we see where his heart, and his anxiety is. His heart trembled for the ark of God. Um, trembled um, is a word implying uh, just absolute fear, um, almost panic. Same word is used in Judges chapter to when God um, separates Gideon's army n- narrows it down um, now therefore proclaiming the ears of the people saying whoever is fearful and trembling wh- whoever can hardly function because of their anxiety let him return home Okay, that's the way Eli is pictured here he's trembling, he's afraid and again I think he knows judgment's coming okay he knows his sons are in line they're both going to die on the on the same day but now they've gone out to battle and they've taken the ark of the covenant with them and that's where his anxiety lays now kind of begs the question as high priest why didn't he say why don't you leave the ark in the tabernacle don't, don't take that with you. I believe he had that kind of authority, um, but he, he probably doesn't exert it because of the same reason why, even when he knew his sons were doing wickedness and they were committing adultery on the tabernacle grounds and they were taking the best of the offerings, he never intervened in that either. He had a conversation with them, but he didn't put a stop to it, and yet he had the authority to do so. It, it's, it's a tough picture when you unpack it like that. Now, I would argue there's a little redemptive glimpse of Eli here. Um, he knows the prophecies. He knows his sons are probably going into harm's way. Um, and he's not really worried about them, as, as a literal reading of the text would indicate. He's more worried about what's going to happen to the ark. And so I'm going to give him credit. That's good. Uh, he should be worried uh, about the ark of God. His sons are wicked. They deserve judgment. God has already said that is coming. And, and he's kind of reconciled himself to that. Um, And so again, at least in that sense, you might say he's agreeing with the judgment of God, and that's positive. But you've got to also know um, he's juggling kind of his role as priest here, along with his role as parent. um, And he's in a tough spot, and there's even plenty uh, to criticize. Um, As parents... Um, one of the toughest things to do, you know, and I'm kind of transitioning into this, is, is as your kids get older, um, at some point they become adults. They should. Hey, anybody want to say amen to that? They should become adults, okay? I know our culture's kind of lost its brain on this lately, but your goal is to raise them up and to turn them loose, and when they become adults, their decisions are their decisions, You may have input, you may certainly you should pray for them and and be a voice of wisdom if they seek it out. But at some point adult children make adult decisions. Okay? And they bear the consequences for those decisions. Hopney and Phineas, they're older in this text. We see certainly one of them is is married at this point, so he they're no longer under his authority hard place to be as a parent especially when you see your sons doing wickedness as he saw them and in that case you just begin to hold and uh, hold your breath and pray i believe but eli is not just their father and we can't escape that he was the high priest he was in that sense he was the the boss of that important role in their life as a real man of god he should have intervened um, and removed them from their role as priests at the very first hint of wickedness but he didn't do that and now he's allowed them to go to battle knowing something bad is bound to happen to them and he's let them take the ark with them and so yeah his heart is fearful for the ark of God and so I think we should read this as understanding Uh, there's a part of this judgment that's coming that is certainly going to fall on his shoulders too either as priest or parent or both but we continue we see uh, the anguish Next, And this would be the anguish of the city of Shiloh. Um, When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. This messenger, uh, who I think everything in the text would indicate, has been appointed as a battlefield messenger. That's his job. He's not just doing this on his own accord. But he's been told to run the news back. Um, He runs back to Shiloh. Um, You would think he's been tasked to go to the high priest. Um, But he runs right past Eli. Maybe he's headed to the city leaders. Uh, Maybe he's headed to Samuel. We really don't know, but for one reason or another, uh, whether it's just an oversight or haste or sorrow or whatever he runs right past Eli and he runs into the heart of the city and he tells them um, what has been done and again uh, maybe it's not intended this way but I can't help but see this as a further picture of of Eli and his blindness he's the high priest which should be the position of authority in the city but he's the last one to know what's happened with the battle the rest of the city hears the news and it tells us that all the city cried out um, that implies um, weeping, wailing, tearing of clothes. They would put dirt on their heads as well. Um, this is the way um, the Jews at this time received those kinds of uh, that kind of bad news. It was a, a loud, brutal sound. Um, and it's significant. Because it's not just one battle. Um, the city of Shiloh is never the same after this moment um, in Israel's history. Uh, Jeremiah seven twelve, I believe, describing this as, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Um, where I made my name dwell at first meaning the nation of Israel came out they entered the promised land over a period of time the tabernacle was, was put in Shiloh the ark of God was there um, the holy of holies was there all the accoutrements of their religious system was there in Shiloh Shiloh was a, was a special place a lot of its commerce and its importance of a city was derived from the fact that the nation of Israel would come there to worship Jehovah but then he says and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel From this point forward, Shiloh is a byword unto the nation of Israel because the Ark of the Covenant goes and it never comes back. And so the tabernacle is no longer located there as well. In Psalm 78... Beginning in verse 60, we've, we read this text last week, but it says he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. That's the ark of God going away. He gave his people over the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women, had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. That's this incident, and this is the end of the line, so to speak, for Shiloh and its place in the history of the nation of Israel. And from the moment the messenger delivered the news, I think the city leaders knew it. They were mourning not just their loss of status, of of prestige, of of commerce, but also don't miss the fact that uh, battle has been lost and there were loved ones dead on the battlefield, their husbands, sons, grandsons, uh, all those who had died in the slaughter in the battle. And that outcry of the city makes its way back to the high priest. We see his amazement or, or puzzlement. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Uh, Eli certainly, by the, the sound of the outcry, knew it was bad news. Uh, that phrase is always used in the Old Testament to deduce um, something that is horrific uh, or to predict something horrific. Uh, he knows the difference between a celebration and an outcry or a cry of mourning. But he doesn't want to speculate. He wants the news uh, delivered in person. It's likely someone overhears the high priest Eli say, "What is this uproar?" And they go and get the messenger who's been tasked to bring the news. Um, and again, you got it's personal. Um, his sons are dead. Um, this news needs to come from the right people. It's not going to be rumor mill. It's going to be the battlefield messenger. So that man hurried and he came and told Eli, "All right," um, and he delivers the news personally. Here's the answer to his question now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see and the man said to Eli I am he who's come from the battle again just meaning I am the one who's tasked to bring the news this isn't what people are saying this is what I saw and what I was told to bring back to you I fled from the battle today and he said how did it go my son he who brought the news answered and said Israel's fled before the Philistines and there's also been a great defeat among the people your two sons also Hophni and Phinehas are dead And the ark of God has been captured. He gives the news, you might say, in stages of brutality. Some would say he buries the lead. Um, You know, The ark probably is the lead here. But um, he kind of goes down the line. Israel's fled before the the Philistines. That just means that their army has been defeated. Um, They've been routed. They're disbanding. They're going to their homes. Um, Then secondly, it's not just been a defeat, but it's been a great defeat. Um, In Hebrew, that word is more akin to our modern word slaughter. Um, so the implication would be there have been a lot of men killed in, in battle. A, a lot of Israelites have died. Third, he, he tells him the personal side. Hophni and Phinehas, your sons are dead. Uh, and then he gets to the last bit of news that the ark of God has been captured. You know, None of this is good. Um, I, I would argue each one would have seemed worse um, than the, the thing that preceded it. Um, but uh, back to Eli. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy he had judged Israel 40 years I believe we're to read this as it's written Eli kind of painfully absorbs the first uh, three bits of of bad news Israel's lost, it's been a horrific slaughter your sons are dead he's heartbroken I would say and and devastated by that news but it's nothing compared to his reaction is when the news is delivered regarding the ark That's when he falls over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. Okay? Now, I think we can be honest about this text. That's a pretty undignified epitaph, wouldn't you agree? You know, this is not how any of us want our obituary to read. Um, And his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. I mean, understand what we're we're reading. We're reading the final words of God regarding the life of one of the judges of Israel. And all we really get is he's, he's old and blind and he falls off of his post and breaks his neck. It's not a real good way to go out if you follow my drift. And, and this is, again, in keeping with how God ends these time periods of all the judges. it's always, he had judged Israel for so many years. Samson had a very similar moment. Not surprisingly, Samson, because of it, his wickedness and the, I believe the judgment of God, he was blind at his death. You remember he puts his hands on those pillars and he, he took out a lot of Philistines with him, but his family gathered up his remains and, and buried him. And it comes to the end of that text and it said he had judged Israel 20 years. So whether Samson was the last judge or Eli was the last judge, uh, they're both uh, trending toward uh, worse um, than the one before them. At least with Samson, there were periods of, you might say, revival in, in that text. You remember that Judges cycle we've talked about? There's um, there's rebellion, um, there's uh, retribution where God disciplines the nation, and then there's a period of, of repentance leading to revival. There was brief periods of national revival under Samson's leadership where they pushed back on the Philistines and, and things began to go well. Under Eli's leadership, we don't see one hint of anything good except the birth of Samuel, and Eli's really had no nothing to do with that okay Eli's tenure there's there's nothing good happening in the heart of the nation during his leadership not a glimmer of it and so I would argue that his death is is the worst of the death of the judges it comes to an end here and it's punctuated um, by these statements fell over backward from a seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy you can't read that positively um, one way or the other um, God closes the book on Eli's fell leadership of Israel now some would argue that the repeated emphasis of his weight here is implying that he he committed the same sin of gluttony that his sons committed you we know that they were taking the best portion of the offerings and maybe that's true it's, you can infer that but I, I wouldn't say we know that for certain but one way or the other he experiences judgment as his sons are judged and it's just supposed to remind us that the nation itself is apostate and, and we see kind of that judgment on eli's family and the nation play out in the last section here we come to his daughter-in-law's despair okay now i don't want to endlessly speculate here but let's make sure we we set this text up right uh, the woman we're going to talk about here is married to phineas okay that's one of eli's sons he's one of the priests who took the ark out and who's died on the battlefield who used to serve in the tabernacle of the lord we know about him because first samuel two twelve told us explicitly the sons of eli Hotney and phineas they were worthless men they did not know the lord okay well let's be honest if anyone was fully aware of who Phineas was, wouldn't you agree his wife knew? I mean, isn't that how life works? You know, you may build a fool somebody at school or somebody at work or a parent even this that or the other, but if you're married, your husband and your wife knows what really makes you tick. That's the way it works, okay? So if anyone knew what Phineas was really like, I would argue uh, it was his wife, okay? And this text is really curious to me. Because like Eli, this lady seems a whole lot more concerned about the ark and the glory of the Lord than she does about having lost her husband. Which kind of leads me to believe that she's fully aware of the fact that Phineas has shamed God's tabernacle and God's people, the nation, and certainly shamed their marriage. And I think she knew, too, that judgment was about to fall on her husband. Sooner or later, it was coming. But she didn't see the loss of the ark coming. That's what throws her for a loop. At least that's how I would break this down, but uh, let's do so. Uh, We start with the tragic news, um, verses 19 and 20. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "Uh, "'Do not be afraid, for you've borne a son.' But she did not answer or pay attention." In an instant, this woman, who is apparently very late into her pregnancy, um, learns that the ark has been captured, learns that both her father-in-law and her husband are dead. Um, and you can certainly add she understands her brother-in-law is dead as well, but I don't think she cares too much about him. Um, she also is smart enough to know that a lot of other of her friends that lived in Shiloh that would have been um, working a- alongside the tabernacle and the priests and probably went out with the ark as well, they're dead too. So there's a lot of tragedy here, and, and that tragic news sends her into labor, okay? Um, and it's curious to me, again, because, um, there's another, I think, overt reference to the Benjamites or the tribe of Benjamin here, again, maybe foreshadowing the coming of Saul one way or the other. But this reads almost like a repeat of, of Rachel's delivery of Benjamin in Israel's past. Um, Genesis 35, And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. It's the same sentence except for the emphasis on another, um, because she had multiple kids. Okay, Do not fear, for you have another son. reads the exact same way. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name ben but his father called him Benjamin. For the Jews, bearing a son was about the best it could get. Um, And so that's what we see. They're comforting Rachel here by saying, you have another son. And uh, Israelite women believe that, uh, you know, obviously having a firstborn son was really significant, but having any son was significant. There's always a chance that a son could could be the future Messiah. So they were comforting her. They, They knew she wasn't doing well. She might not survive the birth, but they say, hey, don't fear, you have a son. God could do something extraordinary through this child. Um, and Benjamin was significant in the plan of God well they, they speak to Phineas's wife in much the same way uh, but it tells us here very specifically she did not answer or pay attention she's not dead yet, okay she's capable of speech, we'll see that in a moment I believe the way we're to read this is that, that she's kind of past the point of caring something that normally would have made a Jewish woman's heart jump even at, at the, the door of death so to speak it doesn't register with her even the loss of her husband hasn't rested with her. Uh, even the loss of her father-in-law, none of that's restured with her. Remember that psalm that we, um, we read about these events, Psalm 78, 64? It says, their priest, Hopney and Phineas, that would be her husband, fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. She's not lamenting her husband in this text. Uh, she's, she's got something else on her mind, and that's where we come to the tragic name and really why we've titled this uh, message today where is the glory she named the child ichabod saying the glory has departed from israel now don't misunderstand that's not what ichabod literally means okay Um, but she's telling us why she named the child ichabod ichabod literally means something uh, no glory or i really believe the best reading would be where is the glory She she names her child that because the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Certainly she's grieving, don't misunderstand. But then she said again, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. She's lost her husband. She's lost Eli. Eli. Um, But that's not what's fixed in her mind because it repeats it twice. Um, And because of the name of the child, we know that she's fixated on this idea that the glory of God has departed from Israel. I have to believe that we're reading a portrait of a good Jewish woman um, who loved the Lord, um, and I think she was zealous for his glory. And even in her pain, and even knowing she's about to pass, even knowing she's born a son, her heart was worried uh, about the glory of God. Um, I would bet if we went back in her past, she would have been thrilled um, with marrying one of the high priest's sons. It was probably an arranged marriage, and and I'm going to guess that she was excited about that. It was a privilege to be close to the tabernacle and to the worship of the Lord and the work of the Lord. But as we know, her husband turned out to be a a wicked man, a a glutton, a womanizer, an adulterer, a man who bluntly did not know the Lord. And so when the day of his judgment came, she didn't grieve, grieve for him. She was grieving for her nation because the ark was gone, and in her mind, with it went the glory of God. Now, that's all positive, but she's still not quite seeing things as they are. And I believe we repeat some of the same mistakes even in our culture today. She's zealous she's heartbroken give her credit for that and we can't blame her but she has placed too much emphasis on the ark see the ark was a symbol it was a religious talisman but it's not the glory of god this church this pulpit even the bible that i hold in a sense they're not the glory of god you get that don't you Um, The offerings we take and the songs we sing, the glory of God is much bigger than any one thing. God cannot be compartmentalized. He can't be boiled down to a box, even the Ark of the Covenant. God is not tied to those symbols or those types or to any individual. God is much, much bigger than that. Can I get an amen for that? We've got to know that to be true. And so, again, I believe she's zealous, but in this sense, she's, she's missing it she's right that God's judgment in a sense has fallen but understand something I believe the judgment of God can come in in really two ways in our lives the first way you don't want which is where the the wrath of God um, in all of its strength and and majesty and power and the wrath of God falls on a people or a nation or a a city or whatever it may be I don't know about you but I don't want to be around when God sends his wrath like that Okay, I'm not signing up for that. See, but that's not what's happened in this text. God hasn't sent his wrath on Israel. God has done something different, and I believe it's something that we often experience in our own lives. Now, don't take it too far. In a, in a New Testament sense, please hear me. If you're saved and redeemed and, and in a covenant with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you've been given the sign and seal of the Spirit of God. Um, you're, you're his child, uh, you're safe in that sense. Your salvation is secure. But know this, when you sin, there's a distance created between you and God. Oh, you're still His child, you're still in covenant, but the intimacy is disrupted. It's like any other human relationship. If you're a jerk to someone, there's going to be a, a, a bit of a separation there. When, when you're not obeying God, there's a distance created. What God does to Israel is He doesn't overtly bring His wrath upon them. He withdraws His presence. That's where the glory of God has come. It's gone not, though, because it was tied to the ark, but because of their sin. That's why it is gone. Seventy-eight. That's Psalm 78 again, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. This, this is before they go out to battle. This is before they take the ark out like they're when God heard he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel see the glory of God had gone a long time before the ark of God turned up missing in the battle the glory of God had already been withdrawn he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh he didn't go when the ark went he went before tent where he dwelt among mankind, delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. God orchestrated all of this, and please know this, he can't be manipulated by people like Israel tried to do and manipulate his power by using the ark as some sort of military device. But most of the time, in our lives even today, God's discipline doesn't come upon us in overt discipline. Here, here's the reality. We live in a fallen world, and when you make sinful choices, most of the time bad things happen without God having to wiggle it around. Anybody follow me on that? You, you, nobody followed me on that, did they? Now, don't miss. God is sovereign. God can do what he wants to do. And again, if-, if God wants to discipline us and understand, as children of God, God will discipline us for our own good, to convict us of sin, to bring us back into intimacy with him. If God wants to, he can arrange events, I believe, to discipline us. But most of the time, when we sin and we suffer from it, the reality is we're simply suffering because when you do stupid stuff, there's a penalty. It's written into the, the universe, the world that we live in. Uh, the lost world may tell you, you know, do what feels good, do this, do that. But the reality is God has designed this universe in such a way that when you make rebellious choices, there's a price paid. Okay? It's just, it's the nature that we live in. Again, can God overtly do something? Certainly He can. But I would argue, certainly in a New Testament relevance, most of the time when we're living in sin and we're running from God, God doesn't overtly slap us up against the, you know, try to get our attention. What God does is He just sort of takes a step back. And the intimacy with God begins to be disrupted and the word of god you you can read it and study it and you you're getting nothing out of it you can worship and there's no there's no energy there everything grows stale god seems remote uh, you can pray and there's like there's no connection and he's not answering well that's what happens when you've got sin in your life and you refuse to deal with it now, don't misunderstand not like this god's not gone gone but the reality is god's kind of waiting for you to figure out what's broken and to repent and to come back to him and I believe this is a picture of that process. Now, again, they lived under a conditional covenant. I get it. Deuteronomy 28, As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. We've got a much better deal, church. Okay, God doesn't zap us when we do wrong. With, with Israel, it was a conditional covenant. When they did good, he blessed them. When they did bad, he judged them. But where we go wrong in our modern teaching, and I know a lot of people are teaching this even today, and it's a disaster when when you hear a preacher say it. People are, well, you're saved, and because of Jesus, and because it's a grace gift, just go out and live your life any which way you want. That is not supported by the Bible. Because when you live like that, there are consequences. Some of them are just the consequences of sin. But in many, many cases, what happens is there is a distance formed between you and the God who loves you and has a relationship with you. There's a disruption in that intimacy, and it comes because there's a lack of obedience. And God wants us to deal with that. Uh, Matthew 25, Jesus himself says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What he's saying is when, when you didn't do what you should have done, God was grieved. He, he sees our behavior still in the New Testament. Um, Luke 13, 5, why Jesus said, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We still have to be mindful that sin impacts our relationship with the Lord, even in the New Covenant. But don't misunderstand. Our, our intimacy with God is not by the fact that you're oc- occupying a pew here this morning. It's, it's not because you sang when we sang. It's not because you had a quiet time or had a prayer time or gave money to the church. Our in- intimacy with God comes down to one thing and one thing, There's, there is no glory without Christ, period. You have to have a personal relationship with him. In fact, scripture is explicit about this. It's not about the church, it's not about the art, it's about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to experience the glory of God, you've got to experience the Son. Jesus Christ has opened the way for us to experience His glory. He makes it explicitly true in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to experience the glory of God? You want to have intimacy with God? You want to have a personal relationship with God? And I hope you do. You've got to know that it all goes through Jesus Christ. But we have to understand that that relationship is dependent on Want asking and rightly answering the question that Israel absolutely avoids in this text. Remember how it all started. The, um, they they lost an initial battle. They said, well, "God is not with us." But they never pause to ask, "Why is He not with us? What what sin is there in the camp, friends? If you do not have a personal relationship with God, there's." There's an issue, and it's called sin. It's what separates you from a holy God. And I would add on to that, if you do know the Lord and you don't feel close to Him, there's still an issue, and it's sin. Yes, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to forgive it and redeem it, and, and you've been saved and all those things, but the reality is it's still sin that prevents us from having intimacy with God, both before we're saved and after we're saved. And it has to be dealt with. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Every single person here has to have a personal accounting of their sin before a holy God. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can pay for it. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So have you accepted the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ bought for you through his shed blood? I pray that you have and if you haven't you're going to have an opportunity to respond to him here in just a few moments But also I hope you understand that that's not all that happens You get saved and you get redeemed and then how you live still matters You don't have to live a certain certain way in order to be saved. It's not what i'm preaching or teaching. Please don't misunderstand but but when you get saved in order to have a, an intimate relationship with God, in order to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, in order for things to be the way God has ordained them to be, we should want to live in such a way as to bring Him glory, as to keep short accounts, as to, to root out the sin in our life. A personal relationship with Jesus should change everything. And it should change how we live and the decisions we make and what we do. John seventeen twenty four. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To what? To see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And if you want to experience the glory of God, I believe you have to take your sin seriously, even on the other side of your salvation. I know that's not what our culture is preaching and teaching today, but our culture is wrong. And our sin matters. Now, Phineas' widow, she's right that life is not worth living without the glory of God. But she misunderstands how we encounter that glory. It's not through Jewish religion. It's not through the tabernacle. It's not through some talisman, even the ark. It's through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They were saved looking forward to the sun. We're saved looking back. Her husband, he was wicked. He wound up condemned to death because he did not know the Lord. How about you? How about me? Again, I know we live in a world that loves to disparage Uh, The word of God today, um, it's still just as certain as it was in Eli's day. They knew what was coming. They were told uh, by a prophet and by Samuel um, what was coming, but we never see a a whiff of repentance from Eli, Uh, never see it from either one of his sons, anyone in the nation, and so judgment fell. And I'm reminded of theologian Bertrand Russell's words about our generation. Hell is neither so certain nor as hot as it used to be. What are we doing? We're just rewriting the Bible. We, we, we want to wallow in our sin. We want to do what we want to do. And so we make it sound as if this book can't be trusted. As if you know everything I've preached today is somehow old-fashioned or out of date. Well, here's the reality. Hell is still real. It's still a place of judgment. It's still a place where those that do not know the Lord will be separated from Him. And, and we can argue about how hot hot is, but I know this. It is a place where no one wants to spend eternity, and it will be miserable, and, and it will be a place of judgment, and it is real. And we've grown so comfortable with our own wickedness and our own societal sins that we ignore God's Word to our own shame. Well, what are we going to do about it? As our musicians come, you know, you have an opportunity, if you don't know Jesus, to respond to him today. And I I think what's beautiful about this text is we've seen uh, the last judge. We could argue it's Samson. We could argue it's Eli. And we've seen them ushered off the page. But what we've also seen is we know that Samuel's waiting in the background. You have this birth narrative that this book began with, and it's telling us that there's a man of God waiting to bring the nation back to him. Well, I think when you think of Samuel in that sense, typologically, you should be thinking about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He's waiting. He's waiting to make a way for you. He's waiting to know you and to redeem you. And if you know him, he's waiting for you to repent of of sin you might still have in your life so that 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 intimacy can be restored. Whatever business you have to do today, church, let's stand and let's respond to him.